wild courage exists to galvanize a generation of men. The tools and courage to fight for what matters most. And tell the stories that are born in the redemption of lives and souls. Hey guys, welcome back or to the Wild Courage podcast. Today I am in Thackerville, Oklahoma, interviewing my new friend, Ben Baldus. Thanks for coming on here, man. Thank you for having me. But you don't live in Thackerville, just so that we're all clear, right? You're you're in Texas. Correct. The we just, other side of the river. Yeah, the the good side of the river. Yeah, kinda of depends on where you're at, but yeah. God's country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so we just met literally a couple of hours ago. Yes, sir. And you came up here and were kind enough to jump on here, and I really appreciate it. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. I've, I've heard your other podcasts and love what the Lord's doing with the podcast and what you guys are doing and excited to be a part of it and just um, just see where the Lord goes with it and just be obedient to be here. Sweet. Well, thanks for doing it. And so the one of my favorite things about doing this is meeting guys like I don't know you at all and getting to know you like in this space is fun because it's like such a clean slate, right? Like interviewing people that I've known for a long time, it's like I feel like I miss a bunch of stuff because I know their story pretty mm-hmm. well. And this so this is fun, a, a unique way to get to know somebody. But it's uh it's it's been great getting to have dinner with you and getting to talk to you a little bit and I'm stoked to get to know how did you become the man that you are today because I think sometimes as men we forget that we get around powerful men, good leaders, and we disqualify ourselves because we forget that nobody was born this way. Mm-hmm. Like the man, the horse trainer, the husband that you are today, you you weren't born knowing how to do any of those things, right? And I think sometimes we forget that, you know what I mean? Yes, sir. And so it's good to surround ourselves with guys that are in in this journey and I think hear how they got there because it's a good reminder to me that it's possible, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So with that being said, um, are you from Texas? Born and raised in Michigan. Michigan, that's yes. an unlikely path to be a cow horse trainer. That's right. How did... So... We're at Michigan. I've spent a little bit of time in Michigan. A little town called Pawpaw, south of Kalamazoo. I've been to Pawpaw. No way. Yeah, one of my best friends lives in Pawpaw. That is wild. Josh Doster. Okay. That's so cool. Yeah, he was from um he was from outside of Detroit. We met in Wyoming on a ranch. Oh my goodness. And then, like, we were in each other's weddings, and wow, he relocated from Montana, and yeah, moved to Pawpaw, and I've literally been there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great little town. That's where I was born and raised. Yeah, we did a lot of, this was back in the day, so we did a lot of pontooning and drinking beer. That's correct. There's a lot of that up there. And a pub crawl, I believe, was involved one night. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of vineyards up there, so there's lots of wine and he lived next to a vineyard. Yeah. Yeah. 
lots of lakes, lots of pontoon boats. It's a thing. Yeah, that's a big part of the culture up there is water. That's right. Yeah. The Great Lakes are there. Yep. We went and visited those. Yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah. It's crazy. It was, it's already a small world. It is. Um, K through 12, lived right there. Your yes. whole... How? Why horses? Um, I always wanted to be a cowboy. So, um, you know, kids dream of being a firefighter or a doctor or a policeman. I dreamed of being a horse trainer and a cowboy. Ultimately, cowboy first. That was the dream. Be like John Wayne. Did it uh, come from movies and TV? And- probably. And in my family, uh, my mom showed horses growing up. Mm. And um, both families had a farming agriculture background and uh, an equine bend outside, stuff like that. So there was always horses around. And I just loved riding and loved training. So did that... Did you like play sports in high school or was it always horses? Um, I was probably 13, 14 and I was homeschooled growing up, but they asked me if I'd uh, come play on the basketball team. So I was taller for my age then. And I was like, yeah, I think basketball would be fun, but I'm really going to focus on these horses. I've got a, a horse I'm going to work with and a young colt I'm going to break this year. So I probably don't have time to play basketball. Really? And my parents were kind of like... <clears throat> You know, if he's if he's going to pass on sports for the horses, we probably ought to get serious about these horses and, you know, go ahead and uh, and that. So that following summer, they leased a, a show horse for me, and I started showing in the local 4-H classes on a leased Appaloosa horse. And so you were just showing in 4-H, like, all the different classes That's right. that they offered? Mm-hmm. And you were hooked? Pretty much. And in Michigan— just because I don't know, was, was there a lot of that going on outside of 4-H? Like, were there open horse shows or anything like that? Or was it pretty much like 4-H driven? Primarily 4-H driven. There are smaller local shows, local breed shows. But again, on a much smaller scale. Much more recreational, summertime <clears throat> hobby, good weather hobby. A lot of the horse training slows down in the cold winter months in Michigan. Yeah, probably not a lot, ton of indoor barns or anything. You got it. Yeah. Um, siblings? Yes. Younger brother who's two years younger and my sister is five years younger. Oh, dang. So when you were in high school, she was little, but you were homeschooled. So homeschooled. You probably actually had a closer relationship with your siblings mm-hmm. had you went to public school. Yeah, I think so. Because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, were they into horses? My sister did some horse showing when I did, you know, I enjoyed it. She was good at it. Did not stick with it. Dabbled. Yeah. I think it was, you know, older brother was doing it. So let's do what he's doing kind of a thing. So, so you got bit, bit by the horse show bug primarily just in 4-H and growing up. Did you ever think like, well, I'm going to go to college and then we'll see where it goes. Or were you like, no, this is it. Yeah, I wanted to, to train horses professionally pretty early on. Um, I got to watch John Lyons on the VHS and then Clinton Anderson on DVDs and follow those guys like Monty Roberts and watching what they did training two-year-olds, and I'd watch it, and then I'd go to the round pen that my parents built in the back, and I'd work my two-year-olds in the round pen and try to do what I saw on TV. Dang. And... um so I did that a lot in my teenage years and graduated high school early and had an opportunity to either come to 
um, Texas and train horses in at that point, like in raining or Western pleasure. And, uh, I knew I wasn't making great life decisions at that point in time, that age. Like if I came to Texas, it would have been for probably, um, you know, working for a horse trainer that maybe wouldn't have been a good influence. And maybe in that culture of, of drinking and partying and, and that culture at the time, because that's where my decisions and that's the, just the path I was walking at 16, 17 years old. And my parents, great parents, always gave me good advice. And they always said, you know, you'll uh, end up being like who you hang out with, mm. who your friends are, the, the decisions your friends are making, the behavior your friends have, the life choices your friends have. If you hang out with them, you will be just like them. Uh, whoever you work for, whoever your boss is, if you spend a lot of time with them, you'll be just like them. And those are things I heard from a young age. So I knew at 16, 17, I was graduating high school, early homeschooled, sped that up. And if I came to Texas working for the wrong person, it would be negative influences and impact on my life. Ultimately, not honoring God in my decisions there and my behavior. So I ended up meeting a traveling evangelist who preached using horses by the name of Lou Starrett. And I met him in Indiana when I was 17 that summer. He was preaching using some horses. And he had a series of messages that he'd use, but he'd ultimately use the horse to compare our relationship with God and the relationship between the horse and the trainer, the master of that situation, and compare the two relationships, preaching, using uh, the gospel throughout the whole message. I was really uh, inspired, really touched by his message and by who he was. And um, this man, Lou Starrett, the, the probably like the, the strength and the kindness that he showed, you know, he was a he was a man's man. He was a cowboy. He was breaking a wild horse to ride for the first time in about an hour and a half. Dang, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I I didn't know. I've never heard of this guy. Yeah, but the guy that I went and studied under, that's how I met him. He was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And a wayward, lost twenty five year old. I was like drawn to him for that mm-hmm. same thing. So you grew up in the church, mm-hmm. obviously, if you have this foundation mm-hmm. yeah. of faith and parents telling you extremely wise things at that young of age, because that's so true. We It's written on in the barn where we do the wild courage fires. Mm. It's written on the board. Mm-hmm. Like you become like the five most people you spend the, your time with. Mm-hmm. But to receive that kind of wisdom at such an early age, that's pretty powerful. I don't know a lot of 16-year-olds that are getting that. You have the great great parents. parents. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, very blessed. Uh, Great parents. They were were very wise and really uh, an inspiration and and great coaches and champions and cheerleaders for for my life, for my family's life and, and those things. My dad's full of wisdom, so he also also told me when I was like, you know, 14, 15, thought I was really smart. He'd, when I was talking too much, he'd look at me and be like, so uh, the good Lord gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason? Yeah. And uh, you, you got it backwards right now. Yeah, yeah. It's usually my cue to be quiet. Yeah, that's like, a gentle way to... Yes, sir. Yep. Shut the pie hole. Yeah, the other one, like the, the old Proverbs, right, like... Better to be thought a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt. Yeah. 
was like, I wish I still could grasp a hold of that one sometimes. Oh, no, me too. So, I mean, this was your thing. And your parents, it seems, sounds like, like they went out of their way to give you the horse avenue. Like they made it possible. Oh, yeah. My uh, my parents were great. They, they they taught us how to work. They taught us how to um, pursue knowledge and, and how to work at something we loved. And so, like, my teenage years, I'd be watching VHS or DVDs of horse training, and I'd be like, you know, Mom and Dad, this is, this is what I need to do with that two-year-old colt, and this is how I need to break him, and this is what I need to do, and this is the direction I want to go, and they'd see me out there doing it. And pretty soon they look outside and they're like, well, it looks like he needs a round pen. Like he doesn't have a round pen. He's in the hay field trying this, getting drug around. We should probably get the boy a round pen. So they ask around and find out that some other neighbor is selling some privacy fence. Well, Hey, if we took that privacy fence down in the eight foot sections and put it back together, it'd make a really nice solid round pen. And my dad got a light from work. So we go and put a light over it. So now I've got a lighted solid round pen. Dude, like, that's awesome. Awesome. Awesome, you know, and and they were just very creative and and worked hard to provide the situation that if I wanted to work at it, I could work at they it and learn. They would kind of partner with you, you but got not it. hand it to you. Yeah, you got it. They would yep. match your kind of energy and dedication yes. to this thing you were wanted to pursue. Yeah, if you're going to do this, we'll kind of give you some road to run on. You're going to keep working at it. We're not going to hand it all to you, you know. They weren't going to go buy me the nicest horse ever or the nicest trailer ever. I remember we had a, a yellow and white motor home that was so ugly. And I'm a teenage boy, right? So I you're to, super embarrassed. Oh, so embarrassed. <laughs> Two horse bumper pulled behind it. It's the most embarrassing rig. And uh, walking back to the trailer one day, I was carrying a blue ribbon from winning the 4-H class and was complaining to my mom about how ugly the trailer was. If we could park it in the far back, that'd be better. And she was like, would you rather be carrying the blue ribbon? And have a nice horse or a nice trailer without a nice horse. Okay. Perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, when you met, is his name Lou? hmm And something connected deeper than just the horse stuff, obviously, with, with his presentation of the gospel in relationship to the horse. Did that even stir up something more in you as far as pursuing this passion? Uh, it, it, it didn't stir it up for the horse per se, but seeing, seeing and, and visiting with Lou and, and he had two assistants working for him at the time and uh, Jonathan Himes and Donnie Rosie, they both worked for him. Uh, Jonathan on the, equine side helping him with a presentation so if he needed assistance with a, a, a young horse during the presentation or help with something jonathan would be there to help him with it and i think seeing lou visiting with him and seeing how jonathan and lou interacted and and seeing jonathan in that position it was like i could see myself doing that mm. you know wow to to work for lou to travel the united states six to eight months out of the year, put on these presentations, help him with that. And in the experience of that, while furthering the kingdom and you're doing more than just training horses or, or anything for yourself, you're helping others. I was like, that would be a, a cool position. I could see myself doing that. And, and ultimately you're just 
seen one step ahead of yourself to say, those guys are where I could be in two or three years. Yeah, what's possible? Yeah. So I think I could be like them. I want to be like them. So what'd you do after you met him the first time? So he, he offered uh, a apprenticeship program based in Pennsylvania, a one-year college program. So I interviewed, um, tested, got accepted to Miracle Mountain Ranch apprenticeship program. And that was uh, that starting that fall. So like in September, I went to Pennsylvania for the one-year program. And you're like 17? Yeah, 17, yep. And um, so my mom's, of course, like the firstborn's leaving. Like You're going to Pennsylvania. Are you sure you want to do this? And and um, mom and dad both agreed, like, it's a great place. They met Lou. They totally supported it. But mom's still going to miss me. So sure. um, I'm like, mom, I can do anything for a year. It's just a year. I'll be fine. I can do anything. It's only six hours away. Y'all can come visit. I'll be home for Thanksgiving. No big deal. Where was it at, Pennsylvania? Uh Outside of Erie, Spring Creek. Okay, so north. Yes, sir. Yep, I believe that'd be like northwest side of the state. Yeah, just kind of north of Pittsburgh. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I loved it. I loved the school. Uh, I loved... Well, it's like like-minded people, different than 4-H, because they also have the faith element mm. to it, right? So yes, sir. It's, it's like a double-barrel shotgun instead of a single barrel. Like, yeah. There was probably a lot of deep connection made with the other people there. Yeah, it, there sure was. And there was, you know, they used horses differently. Like it wasn't the showing that I was used to uh, and that type of horse, but they, they ran a full-time summer camp, trail ride lessons, things of that nature from their program. And they had horses that would, would slide and spin and, and had some more horsemanship to them. But ultimately it's getting to know Lou and the other men that were there and seeing these these godly men, these godly examples of of men that were were kind and strong, you know, and and I saw a lot of that growing up. But to see it uh, again, even more in these guys that I was meeting there at the Merkman Ranch, and getting to be with the the guys that were just a few years older than the guys that were twenty, thirty years older, but seeing that character and that love for the Lord all the way through was incredibly inspiring. Well, yeah, because they're somebody that you're looking up to and they're modeling again to you what's possible and that you can have both. Because I think for me, like I grew up in church, but when I left home, it was like the things your parents warned you about, right? It was riding bike and horses, chasing girls and drinking was such a part of the culture that mm-hmm. like I just completely stepped away from everything that I, how I was raised mm-hmm. in my faith, mm-hmm. like all of it, like, mm-hmm. and just jumped into this because the older guys that I looked up to and could spur bronc down and mm-hmm. dance with the pretty girls. Like mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, this is must be what you have to do mm-hmm. to be good at this other thing that I was pursuing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it just went the opposite way. But I can see how powerful that, impactful that would be to have good role models, and they're you're all rowing the same way, mm-hmm. and they're speaking into your life and modeling that you can be both. And I think exactly what you're you're you know we all you know whatever we're pursuing or chasing, 
you know, seeing it in somebody else. And it's usually an older man or, or something we like, Ooh, I, I kind of admire that. And I want to be like that. So then it's like, well, if I'm going to be like that, if I'm going to be a, a champion in this arena or in this rodeo scene or sports scene, what are the ones ahead of me doing? So I'm going to do exactly what they do. And, and I was aware enough of where I was at that that my 16-year-old year turning 17 of, of, of bad choices I was making, it's like, okay, if these bad choices keep going... You could see where it was and, headed. Yeah, and I end up leaving home and, and going to Texas and working for, and ultimately like picking a role model that doesn't, isn't a Christian, isn't making good life choices, and that's my role model. Yeah, I'll do exactly what they're doing. That would be my next step. Like I would follow in the exact same steps. And, and while that carries an appeal, right? Because no doubt sin does. It's fun for a season. I also knew ultimately that it was not going to be good. Ultimately, in the end, that would not be, that would still lead to heartache and broken hearts and bad decisions and uh, failed business. So I felt like truly that little uh, twinge of the Holy Spirit of seeing Lou, meeting his assistants, that little nudge of, you should probably do this for a year. This is probably where you need to go. And then talking to my parents, they're like, yeah, we think you should do it too. It was like, all right, I'll go. You know, and that was just the, 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 the pull of the Holy Spirit and then the confirmation from family to, to go do it. And then yeah, that's, uh, so that year obviously was pretty impactful. Yeah, it was really good. And then again, just <clears throat> the, the program that they put in place, being that it's a, a full, Christ-centered Christian experience for one whole year. So you're really, uh, in a sense, detoxing from from everything that uh, you're wanting to bring in with you. Mm -hmm. So like, I mean, the first 30 days, they call it boot camp. And um, there's, you know, like the, the 10 guys that were in the class together. Because it's a small class. You're talking 30 people max. So the 10 guys, we all were in a dorm together. And this is like, these are your brothers. These are the 10 guys and you're going to get up at, at five o'clock for exercise. You're going to do memorization and meditation and prayer as a group of 10 guys. And then you're going to go to your prospective classes and get started on that. And then the day and, and they really schedule so much for you to give you a glimpse of like, if you lived this disciplined life and, and here's some fruit of that and get a feel for it. So here's 30 days in these habits and then carry it for the next nine months to graduation, hopefully. Right. And of course we don't, we're young and dumb and don't do it, but that's what they're putting in place for you. Sure. And you get to choose, but also to me, that speaks to like leaving home and there's this law of first, right? Mm -hmm. And the first experience you have is, as I'm listening to this is like being super uncomfortable, mm -hmm. which is where growth really comes from, right? Is mm -hmm. doing things that we're not comfortable with and to be, taken out of your home and everything you've ever known mm -hmm. your whole life mm -hmm. and being plunked down in with 10 other dudes. That's very uncomfortable mm -hmm. at first, mm -hmm. but that kind of gives you a different perspective of leaning into hard things too, because yes. this life is for sure going to lend plenty of ass whoopings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that starts with being uncomfortable. Yeah. 
and then creating good habits, which is very, what a powerful age to get in some of those things instilled, I would imagine. Yes, and I agree. And I think it's John Wayne who said, like, life is really hard, and it's even harder if you're stupid. And I've been that plenty of times. I still am sometimes. That's right. I know. I feel that. I feel the same way. So through that year, you're being molded into, I mean, that time, that, that, that age, 17, 18, is when we're really trying to figure out if we have what it takes, right? So we're running around bumping into things, trying to figure out where we stand in the world, right? And I would imagine that coming out of something that's so intentional, like gave you a better sense of identity coming out of it than probably wandering around as a 17-year-old trying to figure out college or working for a horse trainer in Texas. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, and and like you said, uh, the one, the vision of what you want your life to be, the role models that you put in your life, right? So I could just, and again, my parents helping me with that, that picture and that path I was walking of what it would be like if I came to Texas at 17 in, in probably at that time it was going to be like in a Western pleasure type discipline or reigning discipline. And, and instead feeling like I was drawn to Pennsylvania to go work there, to go there as an assistant, an apprentice. And so the, it's a one year program. I stayed one year and uh, a percentage are invited back to be on part-time staff, part-time student for a second year. I was invited back for a second year. So I, in the second year, I worked under Lou Starrett directly and traveled with him. So then getting to travel with him and again, the, the man who I saw and like, I want to be like him. And then getting to travel with him was like, this is amazing because this gets me even closer to him to get to know him, to be on the road with him. So, you know, we were waking up at five o'clock in the morning to go get on the road to drive to the next location. Well, I might get to be shotgun and listen to him as he's telling stories or praying or counseling people on the phone or whatever it is, like very involved in a, a part of it and just learning and absorbing so much knowledge and so much experience and wisdom from him and, and seeing that and be like, that's what I want in my life. I want to be like that. And my parents gave me so much road to run on. And then you're seeing another super godly man who's who's training horses, who's tough, who's strong, who has all these disciplines that I want in my life also. And then such a heart for people that you could just naturally walk into a tax store, be talking to somebody and be like, do you love Jesus? Because I love Jesus. Do you want to talk about Jesus? Do you know him? And it was so natural for him and so incredible. It's like, I've never been around anybody like this. This is cool. And I worked for him for another uh, another year. So I stayed with him two years on staff a third year and then came to Texas to train horses. So that really, by the time you hit Texas, you were, you were pretty solid in your convictions and your faith and the kind of man you wanted to be then. Yeah, I had a... a great pathway for it. I still made lots of bad decisions, but I had, I had a great pathway laid out for me. And I think like you're talking about earlier, 
your first experiences and your first habits you build, if you get building them the right way the first time, they're way easier to go back to. So even even if you fall off of them, you got it's, it. It's it's a quicker road to get back to them than if you don't have them. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You know, so I think you know, and um, throughout my time with with the loose stare there traveling, I got to see a lot of different horse trainers, a lot of different facilities, a lot of different equestrian sports. So, um, during that time I got to meet Doug Milholland, reigning horse trainer based out of Oklahoma. He was in Purcell at the time. No way. Yes, sir. So it's another small world thing. Okay. So <clears throat> I'm from Idaho. Mm-hmm. My uncle since the late seventies was sending horses to Doug. Oh, wow. And there was a horse that Doug won the world on named CB Command. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And that's my uncle's, my family's horse. How cool is that? And I was riding an own son of CB Command until he died two years ago. Oh, wow. And CB's been dead since the late 80s, I think. Yeah. But yeah, Doug's, yeah, a great family friend. Yeah. Yeah, a great man. Yeah. Small world. Small world. So I was working for Lou and um, met Doug and, and I told, and, and Lou, Lou knew my heart and that I wanted to pursue more horse training. And I, I loved learning from Lou. I'd been there two years and felt like it was approaching the time to take the next step to pursue more horse training at a performance horse, show horse type experience. Level, yeah. yeah, that's what I wanted to do. And, and, and Lou he was like a dad to me at the time and he's just, you know, and, and still is a big part of my life. But he said, um, like my parents had, like, if you're going to work for somebody, find the best one you can, the best godly guy you can, the best horse trainer you can, the best family man you can get around the best guy you can to absorb his life and the training. And, and so we were at Doug's and he goes, I, if you could work for him, this is where I'd want you to go. I said, okay. And, uh, I asked Doug, I said, if you have any openings, I'd love to come work for you. And he said, well, you can start tomorrow. Really? And I was like, I want to. And yet I told Lou mm. I'd stay for a year. So I was like, let me get back to you on that. And I asked Lou, you know, I said, do you have anybody else to take my position if I were to go to Doug's sooner? He said, I don't have anybody I said, okay, I'll stay. I committed for the year. I must stay for the year and I'll circle back around if it opens up later. So I, I told Doug, thanks so much for the opportunity, but I can't take it right now. This is my commitment. Stayed with Lou, finished the year, stayed on staff the following year without a commitment, but just that I would be on staff until something opened up with Doug Milholland. And about, so from the first time he offered me the job, it was about a year and a half later. Doug called and said, hey, I'm at the Wagner Ranch in Texas, and if you're still interested, I'd like you to come work for me, start these two-year-olds, and I'll teach you the reining. Game on. Yeah, I was uh, I was 20. So I uh, flew out to, to Texas and interviewed and really liked it and enjoyed being around Doug and, and could see him as my next mentor, next man to be like in the training aspect and in life. And so I went home and threw everything I owned, which was not very much, in a green Buick. Nice. And drove to Texas. 
and uh, tried to keep the ladies off of you all the way down to you Texas got out of that You got that off that car. With the green Buick. It was like a boat. It was like it floated all the way to Texas. <laughs> yeah. Um, how was it working for Doug? <clears throat> it was wonderful. Wonderful. I, I learned. Uh, with Lou, I got a lot of two-year-old knowledge, sure. tons of cult-breaking knowledge, presentation knowledge, public speaking opportunity. And with, with Doug... I got just the the steps to the horse training and the steps to the horse showing. So it was a focus on reining, body control, the reining maneuvers, uh, more advanced horsemanship, and in the path towards showing horses. How how long did you work there before you got to go show one? Uh, that's probably there a year. That's that's not bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know how perfect the Lord's timing is compared to ours. So if I had come... If I had come to Texas at 17, it, it would have been a train wreck for me. If I had come to work for Doug the first time he offered me the job, at that moment in Purcell, Oklahoma, he had like 60 horses in training, five full-time assistants ahead of me. I would have been saddling horses, and I would have been so far down the list that I would have got help, but it would have been way, way farther. Pretty diluted. You got it. You got it. So um, when he was at Wagner's, I was his only assistant. I was it. So he had to teach me everything. And if he wanted the horses to be good by the time he got them, he had to teach me. Wow. Yeah. So it was, it was great. It was so much education. He was there to watch me. There was no distractions. It was just. Yeah, you're drinking from a fire hose now. You got it. You got it. His horses and then the ones I was training for him to ride. And, and so it was lots of hands-on, very educational. I got to learn a ton. And. And I stayed there, I think, four years with Doug. and um, Which, in the horse training gig, just for people that mm -hmm, don't know, mm -hmm. four years is a pretty long time to stick with one guy, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think so. Yes, sir. <clears throat> yeah. No, that probably more average in our industry is a year, two years maybe. And, and so I was there a year before I started showing that I started showing and Doug was really teaching me how to how to train them for the maneuvers of the reining, how to prepare them, how to show them, and at a small level, and then a more major event level, and eventually going to the futurity and going to the derbies with him, and and he really taught me like he taught me how to how to train them and how to show them and what to do. And, then, and they were just straight reiners at that point, yes, right? sir. Because yeah. when he had CB, he won the world in the working cow horse, but mm -hmm. he kind of shifted to just straight reiners. Right? Yeah, I think. I, I'm a, I think like probably mid early to mid nineties was kind of the transition of straight reining horses and all the way through the two thousands was a primary focus on reining. And then at the Wagner ranch, because they had cattle to work and they had ranch horses, we still showed in some ranch horse classes and some versatility classes. And then eventually um, kind of the year Doug left and, and headed back to his own business Wagner's asked if I'd stay on and be the primary trainer and showman for the ranch. Really? After four years there as an assistant, and and I stayed on to do that th that role. And they had um, two sons of Highbrow Cat and a son of Pepto Boonsma all the time. And so I'm looking at this going, well, they're breeding these cutting stallions to ranch mares with some reigning influence in there. But these things are really, they're more bred to work a cow. And maybe we need to do some cow horse. So you're like 24 mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you're now running that 
Well, the reigning part of the program. I'm training horses for them. They have a they have a <clears throat> equine division ranch manager, Trace Cribs, and and I got to learn a lot from Trace about the horse training and business and things like that. But he's he's running it. I'm just the I'm just tra- the horse the head trainer. trainer. Yes, sir. Yep. Did you have somebody helping you at that point? Uh, when we yeah, there was like throughout the, my time there, there was usually two or three other assistants. You know, so they they um. It, when I was an assistant, there was, you know, four of us all together. And then as Doug transitioned out, they asked me to stay on. Two more guys stayed. And then eventually we got three more that came in and started training for the ranch as assistants. Dang, that's that's pretty crazy. At 24 years old, you were in that spot already. Yeah. I think that's pretty rare, right? Yeah, it was it was fun. I, um, it was a great experience. I learned a lot, a lot, you know. And I think I mean, because I started with Lou and then with Doug and, and had a lot of experiences already that, um, and again, the primary, I didn't have to manage finances. I didn't have to manage right. from a management of running a ranch. I didn't have to do any of that. Right. Uh, Trace Cribs took care of all that. Um, we just got an opportunity to go through, like there was say 80 foals born every year. So we would start with basically 82 year olds and say, okay, these, 30 are going to go to the Cowboys. So then now we're, you know, somewhere around 50 and these, these are going to be brood mares. So now we're down to about 30 and we're going to evaluate these 30 to see what are going to be show prospects. And we would get them all started. And then Trace would come watch them in their movement and their minds and things like that. And their pedigree after like two weeks of riding, we kind of narrow it down about 15 or 20 that we thought would be show prospects. And at that point, still Rainers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rainers. And then we started getting into the cow horse more and the ranch versatility, the AQHA versatility classes. And that was kind of our focus um, for the next probably four years there at Wagner's. But never full-on cow horse um, yet. Well, let's see. So that been about 24. I was probably about 26 when I went to the Snafflebit Futurity. And oh, it, you entered the Snafflebit Futurity mm-hmm. on Wagner horse? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. You, how uh, many did you take? I took two. Yeah, oh, his name was a little dab will do, and my boots are tough, and um, boots be tough, and those are the two first geldings I took to Reno for the Snafflebit Futurity. How'd that go? Oh, not very good. <laughs> Wait, you didn't just win right out no, the gate? No, no, uh-uh. no. The raining was okay. I think I was pretty good in the raining go arounds, but um, my cow work was atrocious and just had no knowledge of it. You know, we we learned, we we tried, we tried a lot and sure. tried, tried to learn, but. Um, I didn't grow up showing cow horses. I didn't grow up in that industry, and and I had a a steep learning tur- curve to catch up. Uh, even as an assistant, I learned the reining, but I didn't work for a cow horse trainer, you know. So even the adding the cow horse, which is of that sport, two events are cow related, cutting and fence work. So I feel like we needed to play a lot of catch up in those two events to go be competitive. So when you went home from your first futurity, was it like, okay, I need to get some help with the cow part of it? Yeah, that the the industry is amazing, and, the, and all the trainers are very welcoming and encouraging. So even before I went, um, guys like Bozo Rogers were very encouraging and helpful. They had, had been out to watch my horses and help me. Todd Crawford was a huge supporter, actually helped me ride both those horses for a couple of weeks while I had another clinic before the futurity. 
Uh, Boyd Rice was a huge help and encouragement. Chris Dawson. And so there's just, there's a whole lot of guys that were very helpful even before the Futurities. And going there and doing it was like, okay, this sport is very fun. And, and I love this sport. This is what I want to do. Now I just need to learn even more about the cow work and the cutting. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's so many variables. Yes. I started out showing just Rainers and I was like, oh, that's cool. But to me, it was like, there's got to be something more. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not showing at a high level, right? But <clears throat> man, when I started playing in the cow horse side of it, I was like, oh yeah, I could see this is much more challenging and more fun. Not that raining's not challenging, but man, you add the element of a living, breathing, decision-making animal and it changes everything. I grew up a cowboy, so I could read cows. So mm. I felt like I had more of an advantage yeah. kind of there yeah. than just, you know, trying to fake my way through yeah. a raining pattern. And yeah, so it's, I can see how guys would make that switch. Cause to me, it was much more fun oh, going down the fence than just slide stopping or, you know, doing circles a lot. Mm-hmm. I think I, Andrea Fapani's talked about this and his experience switching into the cow horse over the last couple of years and really getting to an opportunity to feel that horse's thinking side of his mind and that the horse and rider are such a team uh, to work, uh, to, to conquer this cow. Instead and, of mechanics. Yeah. And how much that horse has to think to help you and getting to teach the horse to use that thinking side more. And it's very fun. Yeah, I, Andrea is like, he was, because I was showing in Arizona, so I'd see him obviously mm. at the rainings. And my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was working for a rain horse trainer. So I was down there all the time hanging out at Westworld, you know, and mm. watching Fapani. I'm like, this guy looks different in the raining pen than anybody else. Nothing against, you know, Florida sure. or anybody, sure. but just watching him and then seeing him jump over the fence into the cow horse thing and then be super successful at the Futurity this year. Yeah, he was really good. I'm like, the only way that happens is because of how his humility Mm. and his curiosity. Mm -hmm. Because to me, a guy that's achieved what he has in the reigning, it's so vulnerable to go do something you don't know Mm -hmm. that much about, Mm -hmm. right? And I just think, what a... What a man that has a lot of humility. Mm-hmm. Is that the sense? I'm not in the cow horse world or reigning world at all, but outside looking in, is that how he's kind of perceived? Is just like, that's pretty cool that he's humble enough to. Uh, yes, yeah, sir. I mean, I personally speaking, have a lot of respect and a lot of admiration for him because like you said, the the steps that he's got to take from being the highest money earning reigning trainer he's the best in that field ever you got it and to step over and start at ground zero in another sport you know that's an incredible uh, and for him a humbling journey to do that just be like i'm starting over with lessons i'm starting over with coaching i'm starting over at the baby steps yeah it's so it's like it's so i have a ton of you know respect and admiration for him doing that yeah, because most guys wouldn't. That's right. I don't know that I would. If I, you know what I mean, like to You're put right. yourself out there, and you know everybody's coming to the fence to look over and see what he's going to do going down the fence. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And for him to just 
approach it the way he does mentally mm-hmm. and humbly and go get the best help. From, mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really um, inspiring watching him do it. Yeah. I, I would imagine it is again, outside looking in, I'm just like that guy, he's something else. Mm-hmm. So did you feel like the cow horse was a natural progression for you? Was it more based on the kind of horses you were raising or were you like digging it? Were you like, oh yeah, this is, this is fun. Yeah. I thought it was, <clears throat> I thought it was really fun. Cause again, the, the opportunity to, to work on that horse's thinking side and, and partner side a little bit more that you're both together in the reining, but sometimes it's more telling the horse to wait on you and getting the horse to not think as much and more robotics. So he's waiting and the horses that we were training there, the Wagner ranch at the time were were cow bred so they were they were bred to be smart and they were bred to work a cow and trying to take that out to do the reining only is a very uphill kind Mm. of battle i never thought of it like that but makes sense yeah yeah because there's there's just there's there's different animal there's they're smart and they were they were bred to be smart and they were bred to watch a cow from 30 foot away and see its ear flick and its nose turn two inches and move yeah that's a smart animal. It's like, to me, it's a lot like watching a border collie. Yeah, exactly right. Right? That's like, it's so clear they were bred. Yeah. God designed them to do this. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it'd be like trying to get your golden retriever to go work cows. How yeah. hard would that be? You know? Impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like the raining versus cow horse. Yeah. But, um, so you kind of built it. to it. Yeah. You were yeah, like, I loved it. Oh, this is a whole nother element. That adds such a different adrenaline. For me, it did anyway. Yeah, absolutely. To go down the fence is like there's, and I rode bucking horses for a long time. Um, I wasn't good at it, but I thought I was. <clears throat> kind of like me going down the fence. You had fun though. Yeah, I had a great time, but I hadn't felt that mm. since I rode bucking horses. Yeah, like going. Man, that is a that is a gas. Hmm. I'm sure. When they buck with me now, I'm scared of it, and it's an adrenaline rush, yeah. so I'm sure it is. I was scared back then, too. I just didn't have the courage to tell any, admit <laughs> it to myself. So that kind of just naturally happened, and then you're kind of tiptoeing more into the cow horse thing. Are you still showing straight rainers too? Yeah, so then so the following <clears throat> um, four following years for Wagner's as, as head trainer there, we would evaluate all the colts and even – based upon pedigree and confirmation in, in mind. So like this one's a fit for the reining. This one's a fit for the cow horse. This one's a fit for the versatility. And then we would start picking and choosing what lane they would be most successful in. And we would do all three. And, um, you know, we like we had a wimpy's little stepstead that made the open derby finals in the reining and then also went on to win, tied to win, the uh, open two rain at the horse show world show for the NRCHA. Oh, dang. So he pulled, he, he won checks in, in both sports <clears throat> and, and he was good at both and could do both. Um, some horses did one or the other and some horses did both. Yeah. That's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Really as specific as everything's gotten in their lanes. Yeah. It's probably fun to get to go have one that can do both. Oh yeah. Yeah. And at that neat. point, I mean, you're, how long have you been there at this point? Oh, uh, like I'd probably been at Wagner six years. Um, what's your personal life like in that season? I was married. Wait, when did you get married? 
Well, let's see, 13 years ago. So were you still working for Doug when you got married? Yes, uh-huh. Oh, okay. Yep. Yep. So Where did you meet your wife? Uh, originally, first time with Lou Starrett. She was somewhere where you guys stopped by? Yeah, yeah. Um, her family was at a family camp in East Texas, and, and they were there together as a family, and Lou was the presenter. And so I got to meet her family, her grandpa, mom and dad, everybody there, and um, got to be around them. And and no judgment here, right? Judgment free zone. I, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. So I told my buddy I was with. And now I'm 18, she's 13. I said, hey, um, if I were smart, I'd wait for her to grow up because she's going to be beautiful. <laughs> yeah, nailed it, nailed it. Um, this is, and I don't take any credit for that. That's my mom's wisdom. Okay, so like growing up, yeah. I'd be like, hey, like she's really cute. And my mom would say things like, um, you know, watch how she treats her dad. Mm, how man. she treats her dad is how she's going to treat you one day. Yeah. Um, maybe get to know her mom because she's going to grow up and look like her mom. Oh, there's some wisdom in that. Your mom's much more subtle. You know what my dad told me? <laughs> no. Don't buy the calf till you've seen the cow. It's kind of the same, the same, <laughs> same thing, but with a little thing. cowboy... Logic. It's the same thing. Yeah. You're right. So. So I met. You met her when she was 13. Yes, sir. The first time you met her. Yes. And then you go on tour, mm-hmm. do that for a few years, then go to work for Doug. Yeah. And we continue to cross paths. So her family's involvement with Merrick Mountain Ranch is that, that her and her sister came up for like a winter retreat one year. And so you saw her again. So right I there. saw her again. Uh, we were back in Texas the following summer and saw them again. So we continued to cross paths. And as we both, um, as, as we both got older, uh, I had a girlfriend in Pennsylvania. She had a boyfriend in Texas. So there was no romantic interest early on. Um, but again, her, I admired her dad, uh, her mom, her family. And again, a lot of the stuff that I saw in that family were things that I, aspired to mm-hmm. uh, things that I admired in their character and in their love for the Lord and just who they were as, as people. And so crossing paths and knowing the family kind of from a distance, but also getting to know them more. When I came to Texas to the Wagner ranch, they were in Weatherford and they're, they live there. Yes, sir. They live in Weatherford and their 4-H district was in Vernon. So they had to drive, past the Wagner ranch. Well, they would, they would call and be like, Hey, are you around? Let's get dinner or let's, you know, see what you're up to. Cause, cause I, again, I, I knew her dad and kind of had a, a mentor relationship with him a little bit and then the whole family. So we, so it was super organic and innocent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so we, we, we both kept in touch. And then as she got older and as I got smarter and was like, um, truly the, this, the uh, Cameron's her name. My wife's name is Cameron. Um, Cameron would be like the dream. I mean, like she's never going to date me, but if, what if she did? What if she did? And um, the girlfriend uh, from Pennsylvania had her and I broke up and um, Cameron and her boyfriend broke up. So we were both probably single like six months or so. And um, I was like, 
I have to see if she'd go on a date with me. She's probably going to say no because she's so far out of my league. She's so pretty and she's charming and all these things that are amazing about her and she loves the Lord. Um, she probably will never date me, but I have to see. I have to know if she would. Were you a little bit nervous just because of your relationship with her family and her dad too? Um, no, not, not, not like I, I kind of had a feeling that her parents liked me enough Okay, that they, you know, that they knew me, uh, working for Lou and, and they and, knew your character and yeah. your intentions would yeah. be good. Yeah. For the most part. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Is any can for a, how old were you when you asked her out? The exactly, first time? Like, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you called her up? Like out of the blue, um, so more more subtly, she had been building um, horse show outfits, leather horse show outfits that she was okay, showing. In. This is important. They're outside of 4-H. They're involved at some capacity in the horse world. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, she was working for Casey Deary at the time, and um, was showing reining horses with Casey and was working for Casey. And so I was, I was going to Casey Deary's to get help in the reining. So Casey, conveniently, yeah, Casey still is, uh, got his feelings hurt that I was coming to get his help and there's another stole his help (laughs) never to bring her back. I never returned her to work for him again. That's funny because Ben Bela was the reigning horse trainer that my wife was working for and we were really good friends. That's how I even met my wife. Same thing. Yeah. He's like still pissed at me. Yeah, exactly. To this day. Yeah, because you stole his help. I stole his, his, the best hand that he mm-hmm. said ever worked for him. Mm-hmm. I moved her away from him. That's right. <laughs> Sore losers. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's tough. So, subtly, hey, how would you feel about going to dinner? Um, I asked if she would be willing to help build a pair of shaps for me. Because she was doing the leather work already. Oh right. So oh, that's know, even easier. Even easier, right? So she said she would she would do it. So I said she'd be happy to pay her for it. So now we have to get together and talk about the shafts and what we're going to do. She's got to measure you. She's got to measure me exactly right, right? So, yeah, buddy. Uh huh. So we start there, and um, like a couple of weeks go by, and we're kind of Facebook messaging, and then it's like, hey, the Wichita Falls Ranch Rodeo is going on. Do you want to come up for the ranch rodeo? And um, kind of hang out, make it a date. So, so she came up for the ranch rodeo and um, went to Chili's and yeah, the ranch did. rodeo. Oh yeah, oh yeah, went all out Wichita Falls. Really, you know, showed her a great time. And um, got the onion blossom. I think so. Even had dessert <laughs> and uh, just had a great time. Great weekend. Went to the lake. Fun time hanging out. And so I think we probably went on a couple more dates and officially started dating. So not long. No, I couldn't let her get away. Had you really only had the one other relationship with the girl in Pennsylvania before that? Uh, No, sir. There was other ones spread out through? Through high school, through teenage years. I was homeschooled. But I still had lots of friends. Yeah. So I could go to everybody's prom. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, isn't that fun? I didn't mm-hmm. have a school, so I could no go to... No loyalty. S- you got it. You got it. So um, 
and, and then in showing 4-H horses, right, there's not a lot of guys oh, that yeah. show horses. So the odds are very much in my favor. Oh, very much. Yeah. <clears throat> the reason I ask is because I'm always interested in guy's story where they get with their wife in what heartbreak they bring into their marriage. Cause it's something I'm, I'm talking to my 15 year old son about a lot of like the, what's the point of dating if it's not serious? Mm-hmm. Because if you get your heart broke, mm. you're going to take that into the next relationship mm-hmm. that will jade you. And then the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one. Mm-hmm. It's just a pattern that I've recognized not only in my own life, but in a lot of young men and women's life. Mm-hmm. And then pretty soon the, the gal that, that you might've been qualified for, mm-hmm. you start clicking down mm-hmm. and the people that are going to be attracted to you start clicking down also because of the trauma that you now carry. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why I'm asking like mm-hmm. if, if, but if, but if it's just dating, I think that it's for fun and it's not real heartache and heartbreak. Mm-hmm. You can avoid some of that. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of my point in asking, like, yeah. do you, knowing what you know now, because you've been married for a while, mm-hmm. did any did any of your um, dating experience before your wife show up in your marriage at any point? Yeah, I'm, I'm a, yes, for sure, for sure. And I think most of um, my, my early 4-H dances, 4-H, first girlfriend experiences, right? We're, we're all relatively innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's not much heartache there. Sure. Um, but the the uh, my girlfriend before Cameron, um, you know, we were to a point where we did talk about uh, possible engagement and what that would look like. She moved to Texas to go to school there. And, um, and then we ended up breaking up, right? So that's, yeah, I think that is, um, a lot of, uh, emotional attachment, emotional baggage, whether that's, um, you know, just emotional baggage or even sexual baggage that you bring into that relationship, you're bringing it with you, Yep. you know, and, um, now your wife has to understand and accept and learn to love both, you know, and, and like you said, um, for for those in dating relationships, like whatever the choices you're making, yeah, you're going to carry those for the rest of your life. And you're going to carry those experiences with you for the rest of your life, positive or negative. And they're going to go with you into the next relationship. And that's why I bring it up because <clears throat> I've, I've heard back from a lot of young men that listen to this. And so I think it's important for them to hear that and gals from your perspective, you know, of asking these types of questions, like, because when we're young, we don't have the wherewithal to understand that the choices that we're making when we're young, they're going to follow us. Mm -hmm. And as low as the stakes may seem when we're young, it's like, no, it does matter. The choices that you make when you're 16, 17, 20, Mm -hmm. those choices, they follow you around. Oh yeah. Good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you're you're dating. You did you knew though pretty early on that like this was the one, right? Oh yeah. As you're courting her and 
Yeah, she's beautiful. She's amazing. She's she loves the Lord. She loves her family, um, and she's beautiful. She's funny. Got a great sense of humor. Great work ethic. And and, and even when I was a, a growing up, I was thought the type of wife I'd love to marry one day could drive a truck and trailer, and then and then I could be like, babe, we need to go to town, and she could dress up. And put on a dress and heels and be a lady and be this refined and feminine and, and beautiful lady at the same time. She can back a trailer up. Yeah. 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 And she can. Yeah. So mine, like mine too. When I was like when I saw that, like, oh, this is it. They, they don't make them any better. They, there can't be another one as good as her. There's no way. And she's in the same passion, like her passion mm-hmm. of Getting them broke and do the thing. That's She's right. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. So seeing her and, 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 you know, knowing her for years, even before I started dating, like I knew there were so many qualities about her and so many things that I admired and, 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 and admired from afar. And then as I got to know her more and started hanging out and started dating, I was like, oh, this is real. And it's even deeper than what I thought and even more love and respect for her as we got to know each other more. So we dated from, from May to, or actually from maybe like August. So we dated from August to uh, Christmas, took her home to meet my family for Christmas and uh, my family loved her. And so I was like, okay, like I'm pretty sure we're going to get engaged and get married. Like this is the one. And um, as my family got to meet her and be around her more, I was like, oh yeah, she's the one, no doubt. And so, yeah, so I talked with her, her parents and did the whole deal and, um, got engaged and then married in May. So, oh, you knew fast. Yeah. That's real fast. So less than a year, all that happened. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But I've known her since she was 13 Yeah, and known her family, known who she was. And then like, um, for for our life and what we wanted in our relationship, we were gonna save sex till we got married. Scripture tells you don't awaken love till it's time. Natural progression of love. So it was like in say November, I was like, this is the one I want to marry. This is the one I want to spend forever with. When I just think to myself, like. Is this God's best for my life and who I want to spend forever with? Do I want to be with her forever? Yes, I do. As long as I live, I want to be with her without a doubt. Good or bad days with her for as long as I live. So it's like, why waste time on that? You know, why, why drag my feet on this? I have, you know, and, and for both of us, like her parents' blessing, my parents' blessing. So uh, while we were both, you know, because she was 18, and um, so while we we're both young, it was like, oh, this is the one. Made it happen. Yes, sir. And you, so you were working for Doug when you got married. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> you moved to the, well, you, when you started working for Doug was at Wagner Ranch because mm-hmm. he'd already moved. Yep, he moved to Wagner's. I was at Wagner's. So you got married and moved down there together. Yeah, I was working at Wagner, so I had a house there at Wagner's, and um, and you know, she, she left job. Casey. Yeah, yep. So she left Casey for the better, better thing. You got it. That's exactly <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and so she moved up to Wagner's. We got married in Maine. She moved to Wagner's and started our life together there. 
What was her role in your life outside of her being your wife? Like, what was she, was she involved with the horse program there at all? Yeah, she came to work for the ranch and, and her, she went to Weatherford College and, and her education was in the horse reproduction. So she came to Wagner's and was assisting there at first in the, in the AI and the reproduction side of the ranch with the brood mares, studs, all that, the recipient mares, embryo transfers, and she helped with that. And, um, it, you know, during breeding season, she was busy with that six, seven days a week. And then when they're not in breeding season, she would help saddle and warm up horses and go to shows and, and do things at the shows to help out with the Doug and I. You guys were like a little power couple. It was, yeah, it was fun. That was a really fun season. Yeah. Um, it's side note, even uh, last month, um, so proud of her and who she is. She had a, a magazine article come out, and it's highlighting her and her modeling experience and what she does modeling and how she does the modeling and juggles the business and how she puts both together and, and the example she wants to be like as a, as a godly horsewoman and a godly businesswoman to others and other young ladies coming up. It was a super cool article. Wow. In what magazine? Um, this is like a Western, Western horsewoman. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah, it was really, really So neat. she's a super powerful gal. Oh, yeah. She's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. She's godly. She's amazing. She helps out at church this year. Just so proud of who she is and like the, the growth and the goals that she has and what she wants to be for herself. That's incredible. Mm. And to like have her career, but come alongside you in those early years of marriage and like go to the shows and wrap legs probably. Mm-hmm. And yeah, help saddle, yeah. do all, all the Bright things. Manes, all the things. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and still, like, if that's <clears> what we need to do, she still goes and does it. So what happened when you left Wagner's? What was that, what was, what did you transition into? Um, the Wagner Ranch was selling at that point in time, and we weren't sure when the ranch sold if they were going to continue with the horse program or if they were going to you know, just scratch it and cowboy for a living what the ranch wanted and kind of felt like they weren't going to keep the horse showing going. So we were looking at different options and um, found a place in uh, in Bowie, Texas. A friend of mine told me about it and, and we went over there and looked at it and really liked it. So we were going to transition from the Wagner Ranch into our own business mm. and bought that. How old were you when that went down? Oh, goodness. Let's see. I was probably 30. So it was kind 28, of... 28, 30? Yeah. Somewhere right in there. I'm 37 now. So you bought the place, but mm. you didn't have any customers, right? None. <clears throat> no customers. So that was a pretty big leap of faith, I would imagine. Huge. Like, okay, we're going to sign on a bunch of pieces of paper that say we have to come up with this much a month. You got it. And you got it. No idea of how that was going to pan out. You got it. Totally a God thing. Again, from the start, I go to the bank and, and I, and I, I own my car cash. I don't have any debt. I don't have any credit cards. And I literally go to the bank and I said, um, Hey, so the ranch might sell. And I think I'm going to need a loan to buy some property. Probably like at that point in time, Maybe three to five hundred thousand is what I'll need to buy a place to get started. And the loan officer said, um, and I'd I'd been at the bank for a long time and had friendships built there. And he said, you know, you need to do what my son did. 
he did a first-time farm loan through the USDA office, 300000 zero down. And I was like, yes, that's what I need. So circling back around, I'd had uh, two broodmares that uh, I ended up acquiring and keeping just north of the ranch. And and again, the way the Lord works all out. So the very first horse I took the snaffle bit for charity, a little dab will do. I trained him. I loved him. He was a super kind horse and uh, some a horse that I really loved. Gelding? Yeah, gelding. Yep. So came back from the fraternity and sold him. Uh, it was hard to sell him. Um, I cried when he left. He was a special one. And, and the ranch paid me a commission on that sale. So I took that money and I bought a daughter of Shine and Spark and, uh, and raised two foals out of her. And, um, and those two foals helped prove to the USDA that I was a livestock owner. Breeder. You got it. You got it. That's awesome. And that was my qualification. Had I not sold the horse, had I not had the extra money, had I not bought the broodmare, we wouldn't have qualified for the loan on that time when we needed it. The Lord knew. Yeah. He worked it all out, you know. And so we qualified for the loan, got the loan, did all the paperwork, moved to Bowie with a four-stall barn, no arena, no pens at all. We built all that. And um, family's help, friend's help. My friend Cody came down from down the road, taught me how to weld. He let me use his welder. We welded stalls up. We built stalls. We. I mean, you did it yourself. Yeah, I had no money. I had time, but no money. So, um, you know, again, my parents taught us how to work, and hers did too. So... We would we would ride horses until they were done with that, and then we'd work till we were tired, too tired to do anything else, and sleep and do it again the next day. How so? You you're you're a humble humble man, I can tell. <clears throat> you'd had some success, probably showing at this point, right? Like you'd, you, I think we won the world in the versatility twice before that. Made the Derby finals. Um, made some limited open cow horse finals at that point. So, you're not a nobody. Yeah, I was... And being at the Wagner Ranch, I mean, that's like comes with some prestige with the public, probably. Yeah, I mean, what? Uh, and tr- one of the greatest benefits from the Wagners and grateful for that time and that experience there, and you know, some of it was the, the notoriety or publicity that came with it. So, when I won the Versatility World Show, the Western Horseman called three or four months later and wanted to do an article, and... and it, and looking back, a lot of it was because it was the Wagner Ranch, right? Um, Wagner Ranch Cowboy wins the versatility. Mm-hmm. So it's a neat story for the historic ranch. That That's a training story, but it's based off of the ranch history. Yeah. And Quarter Horse Journal had done a couple articles about how we started colts for the ranch and how we broke horses for the ranch. So there was some publicity surrounding my time at the ranch. Which was great for both. The ranch got publicity. I got publicity through it. It was very helpful that when we started out on our own, while I didn't have a customer base built up. Yeah, because you're working for the ranch. You you're not it. You're not riding any outside horses. None. None. Which is, if I followed your story correctly, you hadn't had much experience with riding horses for the public at all because... None. That's where you really kind of cut your teeth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole nother deal. So you hang your shingle out. Mm-hmm. Did, who who was the first person that called you and sent you a horse? A guy from Oklahoma, a rancher. 
Really? Yeah, yeah. He says, I got a, I got a two-year-old. You want to ride it for me? That's sure. So he sent me one two-year-old, had it for 30 days. That was my first horse. I still have a picture in my phone of that horse tied to the fence. My first one. That's awesome. Yeah, and it it grew from there. But you just needed one right then. Yeah, yep. And that we had room, so we had one to start paying the bills, and and um, we were building the arenas, so the outdoor pens, and putting pipe up, and putting boards up, and building it, and doing all that uh, ourselves as much as we could, and saving money everywhere we could, and panicking when the note was due, and if we had enough money for it for several years. And then it kind of like, you know, you feel like you're starting to gain momentum and gain some traction and settling into a rhythm of how this is going to work. And and learning the business side of it, right. which was all new. That's right. And the pressure of the note. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did, do you remember the, like, first really good one you got? Horse or? Yeah. When um, you were on your own? Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a Woody <clears throat> Be Tough gelding, uh, 7S Woodrow, that... My first year in the versatility on my own, uh, I go show there. I meet Jerry Ward, who is a, a friend, another customer, and he's got a horse he wants to send me. He sends me the horse. I attempt to show it several times. It's not the caliber we need. He recognizes that, and he was, uh, and, and still is a great friend, great customer. He was from day one. I, he still has horses with me. Come on. Yeah. That's and, pretty cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And, and he helped me gain a lot of confidence. And um, just a lot of wisdom by little things he would say and things like, you know, if, if anybody's ever behind in paying you, don't be afraid to ask for it. It's your money. You mm, did the work. Yeah. Go get bold, your money. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of things like that that he gave me confidence and boldness in. And um, so when he came to me, he said, hey, I can tell the horse you're showing for me isn't good enough. You're a nice young man. You need a good horse to go show. You don't need this one that's a bad reputation for you. Mm. And he said, you know, do you know where there's a good versatility horse? And I said, I sure do. Stuart Ranch. Wagner's bred and raised him. He sold to Stuart Ranch and he'd be three years old. Let's go try him. So I went and tried him. I liked him. Uh, Jerry let me buy that horse for him. And he went on and won the world three times and national champion twice. And wow, I don't know, six or eight different saddles. And he was a special horse, really special. So do you feel like that one kind of put you on the map as far as like when you went out on your own then? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think that one, yeah, um, he was a beautiful horse. So again, the, the relationships I'd made with several of the editors at Western Horsemen, um, some things like that, they saw that horse, they liked that horse, had already done some articles like, hey, well, let's use you and Woodrow for a ranch riding article. Hey, let's use you and Woodrow for a versatility article. And, and they would circle back around and, and grab stuff like that. And those things are, they're, they're boost to your career. They're boost to your business reputation. Anytime sure. you can get stuff like that. And that horse helped with that a lot. At that time, were you still just riding horses? Not all shore horses? Were you getting colts to start? Oh, yeah. Just kind of riding what you could get? Yeah, what anything that pays the bills. Yeah. Um. I, I enjoy helping people at whatever level that is to help them and their horses reach those goals. So we still, I still take a lot of ranch colts for, <laughs> excuse me, for different ranch owners, for different ranches. We'll start horses, uh, ranch colts for the Wagner Ranch, for King Ranch. Um, and just 
I've started Colts for Tongue River and just start those horses for the Cowboys, for the ranches, still do those things, still love that. And, and today we focus on the cow horses at a, at a major event level, some versatility horses, but we still, um, we have a crew assistance. They, we still start anything. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Um, at what point do you feel like you were like, okay, I, I think we're going to make it on our own. Like how far into it were you or are you? <laughs> yeah. Maybe tomorrow I feel that way. <laughs> Well, I mean, because I guess what I'm, I'm trying to get at is like being an entrepreneur myself, which is what precisely what you've done is being an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I never get the sense either like, oh, I've made it, but there is a sense now that with some, a decade behind me and my business partner, like we've learned some things, we've made a ton of mistakes along the way and it could all go away tomorrow like anything can because we're not promised anything for tomorrow. But in that journey of getting a decade's worth of entrepreneurship behind me, the perspective is changed that even if that went away because of the narrow path, like I know we're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because there's that striving that comes from when we're new in pursuing something mm-hmm. that's like you and your wife learning how to weld, mm-hmm. doing it all yourself. And now you've built this business that you have a bunch of assistants. You have this oiled machine that's kind of clipping along that's a 10 year overnight success, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important to recognize like that journey mm-hmm. and like you've done such a good job like you remember exactly what that was like when you first bought that place mm-hmm. had no horses mm-hmm. because to me it always points me back to being grateful mm-hmm. because it didn't seem like it was that long ago when mm-hmm. it was like the margin of error was so small and tight mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right yes and I think, like you're talking about, there's maybe that sense um, that you're always striving. So I'm always striving and wanting to push myself to to be as excellent as I can. My horses, my staff, anybody around me, like let's let's push for excellence. Let's be the best that God possibly wants for us. We were made in His image. Let's honor Him with everything that we do and strive to be the best, and yet content with where we're at, and find joy in where we're at, and joy in the process. And if we are always looking at uh, happiness um, as a destination, I believe it's um, John Maxwell and Zig Ziglar both talked about, and kind of going old school, some guys there of like, uh, happiness being a destination, right? I'll be happy when I win. I'll be happy when I have my own barn. I'll be happy when I'm married. I'll be happy when I have kids. I'll be happy when you're never happy. You're always waiting. Well, that happiness and joy can start now in that process. And then uh, finding joy in the process. And then you also do find some confidence in the process. 
We've done this before. We can do it again. Yep. You're going to have struggles at every new thing. It's okay. It's okay. To suck. Yeah, it's okay. And you're going to fail a lot. And you should. And that's the only way you're going to learn. That's the only way you're going to grow is by making mistakes. And if you don't make mistakes, are you daring great enough? If you're not failing, are you daring big enough? Are you dreaming big enough if there's no failures? If it's perfect, might not be risking enough. I love that language. I, I use that all the time to do things with excellence and strive for excellence, but not perfection because they're two completely different things. Mm-hmm. Because when I'm striving perfection, I'm an asshole husband mm-hmm. and an asshole is a dad. Mm-hmm. Because that is me trying to regulate my own emotions with striving for things to be perfect. Mm-hmm. But striving for excellence is allowing people around me, whether it's my employees or my family or the people closest to me, for them to strive for excellence is different than perfectionism because it doesn't come from a critical heart, mm-hmm. right? It's like, no, let's do everything we do with excellence, mm-hmm. whether it's stacking wood or sweeping, raking the barn. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be perfect. Right. Because my where, where I'm at with excellence is going to be different than my 14-year-old. Exactly. But perfection is perfection. Yeah. And it's it, I just found that that's such a powerful way to think about these things differently mm-hmm. with excellence versus perfection. Because of course. excellent perfectionism just really m- makes me be a critical person of myself and everyone around me. Mm-hmm. But excellence is like, I can do better tomorrow, but today I'm going to give it my best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the um, last books I was reading um, about being relentlessly solution focused by Jason Selk. He talked about uh, perfectionistic as a, as an athlete. If you're perfectionist driven, your negative self-talk, because it wasn't perfect, you're even beating yourself up way it's too critical. much. So yeah. critical. So <clears throat> critical and damaging to yourself of your own mental self-talk. And then whatever goes in our mind, we end up acting out or taking out behaviorally towards those around us too. So now... Like you said, we're we're doing that to ourselves and then we're doing it to those around us, whether it's our spouse or our children or the employees that are close to us. Or our animals or our horses. You got it. Right. You got it. Do you find that this mindset helps you in the show pen? Yeah, I think so. Because what I think about when I'm training is is just getting the that horse's best for that day. Showing him where he's at, not where you want him to be. Yeah. It might not be perfect, but isn't it probably never going to be perfect. It's just the best for that horse that day. Every ride is that way. Can I make this horse the best in this moment? Two-year-old, whatever it is, not bucking, show horse sliding, working a cow, wherever it's at. And and for myself, to be fair with myself or uh, an assistant trainer, friends, whatever it is, like, just do your best. Um. One of the um, one of the messages they're going through at church right now is 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 really asking good questions, um, how Christ did of others, and really asking questions to get people to go deeper and focusing on somebody else and asking good questions. 
and then taking a step farther to be someone who um, praises people or encourages people at a deeper level beyond the the skill. So beyond praising somebody for a skill to say, uh, I really like you, you're good at this. Praising somebody's character or going farther into who they are as a person and their loyalty, their boldness, their courageous, their discipline, and seeing that in somebody and praising it. Um, and that's hard to do. And that's an area that I'm pushing myself to be better. Well, to be fair with myself, I'm, I'm not necessarily good at that yet. It's awkward to see the cashier and be like, yeah, it seems like they really have a lot of joy. I should tell them I appreciate how joyful they are and how happy they are doing their job. So that's a little awkward at first. <laughs> and so I don't have to be perfect at it. Don't even have to be good at it. I just have to be obedient if I feel like the Holy Spirit is prompting me to do this. And if it's a nudge from the Holy Spirit, I need to go do it. Even if I'm awkward or it's weird, I need to go do it. Well, it's the faith is spelled R-I-S-K, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like pushing ourselves past our comfortability to, because we never know like the power of life and death is in the tongue, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and at our retreats, our wild courage retreats, um, sometimes people cuss, sometimes people say the F word, sometimes, and and I could tell some of my Christian brothers were cringy at that, and I and I I said, you know, there's a there's a difference between cussing and cursing, and mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of religious people who would never cuss but I've seen them curse their own children because they don't know the difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm glad that you don't cuss at your kids. But when you tell them they're stupid, mm -hmm. that's a curse. Mm -hmm. Like there's a big difference. Mm -hmm. And it, and, and the life part of it is speaking to someone that's not about their, that thing that they can do that I feel like is tied to unconditional love. Mm-hmm. And being aware of that, how we talk to the people around us. Mm -hmm. Because how many young men are out there trying to get love from their father, but the only time he ever showed up was for them was when they were doing something that made mm -hmm. them proud. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of in that same lane of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, I, I see you for who you are and not what you can do for me or because you get good grades, mm -hmm. or because you made that basket, mm -hmm. or because you were 74 down the fence, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it is it is a learned thing to do, but it's, it's something that I'm also aware of and trying to be better at, is mm -hmm. to speak life into someone, because we never know the encouragement that we can give someone by, because when you say that to somebody, when you tell the cashier, I, mm -hmm. I just appreciate your joy and how you do your job. Mm -hmm. We don't know what that could do for them. That's right. Like that's the power of life that you're speaking over them. Mm -hmm. And that's really seeing someone for who they are, not what they can do mm -hmm. or do for us. Cause that can get manipulative. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's good. I love that. That's been a good challenge for me. <clears throat> that's a good challenge for all of us. It's a good reminder. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, sir. Yeah, I. it kind of is like holding on and letting go of things. I was at a roping in Winnemucca, Nevada a few weeks ago, 
and a big loop roping. <clears throat> and my team, we didn't even make out of the first round. And we, I was standing with my teammates when they were announcing who made the next cut and who didn't, and we didn't make it. And I was like, oh, dang it. And a half an hour later, one of my partners was like, how come you're not pissed off about this? And I thought about it because I really wasn't. Mm-hmm. And it dawned on me that the month before I had won a roping and I had about a three hour drive back to the house and I won a really nice silver bit mm-hmm. that was engraved and whatever, you know? It's awesome. And I sat it on the dash and I didn't listen to any music or anything. It was a beautiful day, windows down. And I was really grateful. I was grateful that I get to go do this with my friends and see old friends and meet new friends and kind of keep these cowboy tradition things going and my horse, who had only been to town one other time before, did really awesome. And when I got home, I showed my wife the bit. And I put it down somewhere. I honestly don't even remember where I did it. But mm-hmm. my point in telling you all this, or saying this, is I have found that I hold on loosely to the victories. Mm-hmm. And I hold on loosely to not making it to the next round or Mm -hmm. the finals because most of life is lived in between those two things. Mm -hmm. And for so long I chased the winning and my expectation and I was just bummed out all the time Mm -hmm. because none of us win all the time. Right. That's right. I certainly don't. I don't. It happens few and far between when I do, but I just have learned in this journey of like, what's really important, what really matters is how we treat people and how we carry ourselves and speaking truth over people is so much more important than winning the shiny thing or the buckle or the big check or whatever it may be. But also if you learn how to get rid um, hold on to that loosely, you get to let go of when it doesn't work out loosely too. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's true? I do. Yep. I sure do. Because the things you do, the stakes are so much higher than the things that I do. How do you how do you cope with when it doesn't work out well? And how do you deal with when you do win? Um, one of the first years we were in our own business, and I felt like I had two good faturity horses. They did well at the pre-faturity. They did well going into the faturity and felt like these. And I hadn't made the open finals at that point in my career I felt like those those two horses were going to be the the two that I was going to make the finals on. I really did. And um, first horse got sore and hurt before the show. Second horse uh, doesn't get down the fence very good. I don't show him well down the fence. And we don't make the finals. And I just remember crying, like going back to the stalls, crying on the way back to the stalls, being like, oh, I failed again. And this is a failure and what a failure. And are we ever going to make it? Are we ever going to be a finalist or ever going to be successful? Could I ever get on the top 20 list? You know, was my questions and questioning valuing myself. And I remember going back home from the futurity that fall and um, my wife and I taking time and redefining success for our business and for our life and how, it's easy in the world's standards to say uh, shiny buckles, new trucks and trailers, all the things that money would buy equal success. 
and that's probably what the world would tell you that, that if you're on the top 20 list, you're successful. And I really went back that fall and was like, could I be successful if I never won anything? Could I be successful if I never made the open finals? Could I still be happy, successful in this life that God has called me to as a horse trainer? And it was, it was looking at it and really like, okay, what, what honors God in our business and and what can we put that stuff first to be successful? So I've, you know, things like honoring God, being a good husband, cherishing my wife, those things. But then for the business, like for our business, Baldus Horsemanship, let's define success as doing the best job for every customer, doing the best for each horse, communication with our customers, happy customers. Could could I control to a degree my my job or my performance in these areas. I can't control a win. I can't control what the judges thought or what cow comes out, but could I control these things? Being to work on time, giving a hundred percent. Can I control my attitude every day? Can I control how much I'm a leader? How much work do I put into being a good leader? Horse training's part of it. Running a business is another part. How much work do I put into being a good businessman? And in really being forward thinking and investing in those areas of my life outside of just showing a horse, because that's a, that's a small part of it. It's probably the part that's celebrated the most online and in magazine articles, whatever it talks about, but it's all the other background things. And it's almost like for us at that moment, okay, we're going to define success through these other things. And I believe if, if we're, working as hard as possible, doing the best job for the customers with a great attitude, pursuing learning in every area. Eventually the success will be a byproduct of it in the show pen, right? Like we're successful at home every day in practice every day. It will show up in the show pen eventually. And then also loving that process, right? We, we want to win. We're competitive, but we love the process. And you need to love the process because there's way more process. It's a grind, man. Than there ever is the win. Yeah. The win's going to last. How long does it take for a win picture? Five minutes, right? Five minutes and somebody's saying good job. And then what? There's another show and you need to do it again. So loving the process that goes into it. um, It really, I think just that, that finding joy in the process and, and the highs and lows even out over time, right? Same thing like talk about with the business and the entrepreneurial side of the business. The lowest lows aren't that low anymore. The highest highs aren't that high anymore. And the business is going to keep going. It's been going. It's going to keep going. We're going to have the lowest lows. I have fell off in the show pen before. That's pretty low. That's painful. It's painful. I've had horses fall down. That's also painful. I've zeroed. That's embarrassing. So I've had like all the most embarrassing things I could think of happen in the show pen. And I've also had a, a couple of finalists and a couple of wins along the way. And I'm the, the same person through it all. That's, that's solid gold right there. Because <clears throat> it's, 
it's it's like creating a life that you don't need a vacation from, right? Mm-hmm. No, that's fun. It's mm-hmm. great. You should you should take mm-hmm. time to pause and rest and mm-hmm. and for those of us with lots with kids, it's important for my wife and I to carve out time to go be alone. But I, it kind of just happened saying yes to the journey, right? Mm-hmm. Of finding wholeness and healing and all the things that my wife and I have created a life that we hear people saying, Oh, we just, we cannot wait till next January. And it's like June. Mm-hmm. Cause that's when they're going on vacation. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't need to go anywhere. Right. Cause it's the same thing you're talking about. It's saying yes to this process that is life mm-hmm. and the highs and the lows, but just getting to a place where, we're like, yeah, it's, it's, it's gonna, it does, it does level out to mm-hmm. your point, mm-hmm. but it's all an inside job, mm-hmm. right? Because I lived my life so circumstantially for so long, mm-hmm. right? Like if this was, that's why James one has just become my life verse, right? Because we're guaranteed to get our asses kicked and ha- it handed to us. Mm-hmm. But the only thing that we can change is how we react to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you do fall down. Mm-hmm. You do fall off. Mm-hmm. All of us do. Mm-hmm. And whatever that looks like for whoever's listening to this, right? Mm-hmm. But how do, does it change your identity? No. No. Because Monday you're going to be going right back to doing it again. Mm-hmm. And not trying to escape life by hiding... Behind a buckle mm-hmm. or a big check mm-hmm. or any of the things that we think if we get to, it'll fix everything because mm-hmm. it doesn't. No. And if, if anything, if we're only chasing the success, defining success as a win, believing or expectations, having expectations that when I win, I will feel successful I will feel fulfilled. I will feel respected by my peers. I will feel more loved by my spouse when I win. Well, those are all extra expectations that we've built on this. This a lot of pressure, man. Oh, this external thing, and none of it satisfies. You know, and like you're saying, if it's all external circumstances that define our attitude and define our joy then we're, we're going to be unhappy and yeah. unfulfilled. Yeah, because we've went into it with the wrong expectations. Mm-hmm. So, what, what's, what, where, where do you see this all going for you and your wife, your business? Like, what's the goal? Are you just super grateful and and satisfied like where things are humming along right now like do you feel i i I guess after everything you just said you're feeling quite a bit of contentment in pursuing the right things How, how do you balance that with also i would imagine okay taking everything you just said everything we just said when you walk in the show pen i mean you want to win right mm-hmm Mm-hmm. But you have a different healthy perspective of what that means now. Mm-hmm. And I think it's hard for sometimes for people to see that in a healthy manner, 
yeah, go win. Mm-hmm. But if it doesn't happen, it's not the end of the world. That's right. Um, where again, I find that did I do my best? And the excellence was that my best? Did I prepare as as thorough as I could have? Practice and prepare physically, mentally. Was my horse ready? Was I ready? Was I at a place to go compete? Was I as prepared as possible? If and I did everything in my power to prepare, and everything was ready, and it didn't work, it just didn't fit. But but I know I did everything in my power to be ready. I can't control cattle. I can't control draws or ground or what the judges thought. But if I did everything in my power to be ready and was still out of the finals, I just didn't work. Now, to, to be clear, I'm, I'm not happy with that. Yeah, that's what I'm, this I'm is what I'm not happy looking. with that. But I understand that it doesn't always work. You don't always make it to the finals. You don't always have success there. You, when you do everything right, it still sometimes doesn't work. And that's okay. There will be another time. So if if we, or if I if I got ready and I feel like I was distracted mentally, I wasn't prepared mentally, I didn't focus, I didn't have my mind ready to go compete. Okay, the next time around, fix that. If it's a maneuver that didn't work, then fix it. But for myself or my assistants, feeling like if we've done everything in our power to to be ready and to go do our best and it didn't work, okay. It didn't work. Brush it off. Be ready to go again next time. Speaking of assistance, how's that journey been for you? Now, having worked with assistants like at Wagner, but then when it's like your business, like hiring the first person and then adding to that, what's that journey been like? Um, It's been really good. Um, It's been challenging. Anything... I think leadership, staffing, um, leading is is not always easy, and it it can be complicated. But it's been a, a wonderful journey, and I, it's something that I really enjoy. It's something that that I enjoy. I enjoy helping, whether it's seeing some potential in a horse and seeing it go on to be successful, and being like, "Yeah, we saw the potential, and there it it was," or if that's assistant trainers or youth or non-pros in the coaching situation, seeing some potential, seeing some ability and, and having an opportunity to coach and, and help them through that and teach them a little bit along the way. And, and then they go be successful is a great journey. It's fun. I love helping others. Well, I, I would imagine so seeing that you had these incredible mentors that modeled for you what it looked like to be a mentor. I would imagine that you're a great mentor. Well, you'd have to ask the guys that work for me. They may tell you something different. I doubt it. it. (laughs) Just having our fun, uh, you know, conversation at dinner um, with one of your peers who's telling them that he's learning things about leadership from you and things that you're instilling with your team that he's um, taking on with his team and you're kind of leading um, guys in doing that, which sounds pretty cool. I've never seen a barn do anything like that. And it's even the simple things like having expectation Monday morning meetings 
And that's pretty cutting edge, I think, in the horse training world, it sounds like. Uh, it, I get to just pass on what other great leaders have taught me and just keep passing that along. And I, I enjoy, I thoroughly love audiobooks, reading books, um, those those things to be the best leader I can be to help others and, and watch others reach their fullest potential. And in, in the space of assistance and mentoring to be able to pass, I mean, it's, it's awesome to help somebody like, Oh, you felt the first lead change. Good job. That's really neat. Did that ultimately change their life? Did that really do anything to help them eternally to help them with their family? No, not at all. That's a nice hobby. And if Joe feels better as lead change, then I did my job. But like to your question, like where do you see this going? I thoroughly enjoy it and hope to continue to be even way more successful in coaching and mentoring and helping others in their life journey. We're going to get to speak into their life because of the horses, but it's going to go beyond that into their their whole life. So they're like uh, the assistants, the young guys, and we often think of those guys. Uh, we've got one who's married and four kids, and then we've got uh, three other single guys. So, you know, with the single guys, it's, um, hey, wh- how's your dating relationship? Where are you plugged in at church? Um, what are you memorizing this week? Well, what are your thoughts about? Um, questions like, what's bringing you joy? Um, those types of questions, because in, in, in helping them in their life, you know, and, and like, what are your thoughts about? Craig Groeschel wrote an awesome book on winning the war in your mind and, and positive change. And like, what we think about today and the way we think of ourselves today and what we think about in our spare time, if we could see a picture of that for anybody or even for ourselves, we could predict where we're going to be mm. behaviorally in life, in work, in personal relationships, our relationship with the Lord based upon our thoughts today, because it's going to start with a thought and then an action, then a behavior and then a habit, and then a character trait or quality or negative trait that we have in our life a year later, right? So like being able to encourage these guys and be like, hey, this is a cool book I read the other day. It really inspired me. Here's y'all ought to read this book. Y'all ought to enjoy this or let's talk about it. And being able to to speak into their life beyond horse training, like horse training is this much of it, right? And then being able to go a little farther into their life, like that's going to change in what, what the Lord's going to do in their life. That's, that's the, that's the Lord's job in, in doing that. But if we can be a small part of it and be a small encouragement in a window into their life for the year or two or three or four or five that they work for us and get to be a part of it, how much can we then start to create this culture that loves the Lord and loves each other and encourages each other. And in our Western industry, how much you and I grew up with the Western culture and Western code that if you were going to be a man in our sport, you had to drink and cuss and chew and run around and probably party hard and dance hard and fight hard to be a man. Okay, 
Well, how much could we change that narrative and change that culture because of the guys that I worked for taking that into my life and what God's done in my life and now passing it on to the five guys that work for me now? Those five start their own businesses. They take it to the, so now we're multiplying this, to their five assistants each. So in in 15 years, we are 30 guys or 40 guys into this transformation of our culture, of our industry, that's, that's more Christ-honoring, more family-loving, more joyful and celebrating each other for our character and loving the Lord far more than how much did you drink last night, you know? And that's really what I want to want to fast forward and bring into the sport more and more. And that's any industry, right? That's I feel like that's really what God wants us to do in any industry we're in. Whatever space you're in, mountain climbing, hiking, camping, business, lawyer, wherever you're at, breathe life into that space and help people in that space. Be salt and light to it. And be salt and light so far that you're not only stopping with you, but those you inspire, inspire others. And keep that going for generations. That's it. That's where our dreams align. If <clears throat> if we can get one man whole, healed, healthy, and what I mean by get him there, like surround him, mm-hmm. right? And, in, and and show him that it's okay to invite God into all those scary, broken places that we all hide from at some mm-hmm. point. And he can deal with all the unprocessed pain and he can learn to contend for his wife's heart. Mm-hmm. And he can model to his kids what that looks like. This is how we change the planet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With one man saying yes mm-hmm. to, because we can't give away what we don't have, right? Mm-hmm. So if we hate ourselves, we can't give away love. That's right. Because the Bible says, "Love yourselves as what?" Yep. You can't love your neighbor if you do, if you hate yourself. That's right. So men need to go on that journey mm-hmm. of find out who he says we are. Mm-hmm which then becomes our identity. If that place is from where we can find our identity. That's right. And we can get healing in those broken places. Mm-hmm. And now I can, now I'm showing my sons how to go contend for a woman's heart mm-hmm. and what that looks like to get low mm-hmm. and lead from the bottom up instead right. of the top down. That's right. Like that's going to be the expectation for them. Mm-hmm. Because at some point we need to be talking about our grandkids and our great grandkids, right? That's right. And I feel like this is how we do it. Just like to your point, this is how we make a difference. Mm-hmm. But it started with one guy saying yes, which you've done, and it's beautiful. And I love <clears throat> again the space getting to know guys and knowing like what you're about. And I guarantee you that this is how you are walking out your faith is by living it and taking it to the marketplace and not saving it for Sunday, mm-hmm. but everywhere you go, mm-hmm. giving and speaking life. 
I'm trying to. Some yeah. days are not easy, but well, we're of course not. Want because, to be obedient about it. Yeah, of course not, because life is messy and relationships are hard and employees are hard and customers are hard. All of it. Mm-hmm. It's all messy and hard. Mm-hmm. But you just keep, you just don't give up. That's right. That's how we win. That's exactly right. Like, if you want to know how to win at Christianity, it's easy. Don't give up. That's right. He didn't give up on us. That's right. It's not, it's the simple gospel. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's attack, attaching yourself to... <clears throat> I love that, like, to be with kings, become king-like, mm. and surround yourself with the right, you know, the right people we already kind of talked about, but kings hang around with kings. Mm-hmm. And I always think about that. Like, I want to hang around with... Guys are going somewhere. Mm-hmm. And not that I want to alienate myself from guys that are stuck, because I'm giving my life to that. Mm-hmm. And I'm always going to reach back and down and lock arms with my brothers who are in this in this struggle. Mm-hmm. But there is something about who who are you listening to? What information are you taking in? What are oh. you feeding your soul, right? Mm-hmm. For, I mean, for ev- for everything, you know, the music we listen to, the TV shows we watch, uh, what we look at on our phones, the social medias, the Instagrams, the TikToks, whatever it is that we follow, like whatever we're following is continually leading us. It's either leading us towards Christ or away. Either, either, it's, it's that easy. There's, there's, there's a fork in the road at Every decision we make, every attitude we have, everything we do, there's that decision. Is this drawing me closer to God or drawing me farther away? Ouch. Ouch. Well, I mean. I'm not disagreeing with you. (laughs) What we desire, we become. Yes. Look at where we put our our efforts and our money. Mm -hmm. And that tells us where we're headed. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, we'll we'll pursue whatever we love. Sometimes it's a little hard to look at sometimes. You know, like, oh, I really loved, I say I love my wife, but I wanted to spend all my time hunting. Which one do I love more? Or maybe I spend too much time at the barn working. And I need to plan special times with my wife and time with her over work. Yeah, it's, it's, that's so true. And it's easy to say the right thing. It's super hard to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, <clears throat> I think what, what you're doing in your mission and taking, your convictions and what you believe in to the marketplace, to your customers, to those non-pros and to the people that work for you is incredible. And I can't wait for that day to see all the seeds that you've planted and are some of the seeds that you get to water and help grow 
like that's a big yes. Your your boldness is inspiring to me. As yours is to me. You've called me out of the blue for a podcast and we get to share our hearts together and do this together. And in that to the question of um where where am I, where do I where do I see myself going? I'm thrilled for what the next five or ten years looks like. Thrilled. You're setting it up pretty sweet. And it's it's the it's thrilled because of what what God's gonna do, and what God will continue to do in the lives of those those around us and and those in my life, and being obedient to Him in small ways that that he will use it to reap a reward for him whether that's in in my marriage in my finances in work in mentoring but honoring him with all that we do the next 5 to 10 years is going to be so thrilling so fun and and I'm I'm um 37 so I feel like I'm approaching 40 I'm approaching what I f- can't believe I'm saying this sounds like middle age. When I was young, I thought 40 was old, Dude, right? Stop. Doesn't feel old to me. Stop. Um, but I'm honestly, I'm more fired up than ever because I see these things in my life that I've wanted or had goals for for the last 10 years, right? So maybe from mid 20s to mid 30s, <clears throat> these goals that I've had, and it's like, hey, we're we're knocking on the door of these goals. We're achieving them. These things are getting easier in my life. These are things that were really hard five years ago. And some of these disciplines of, of getting up early, of exercising, of um, helping my wife with things around the house, whatever it is that were, were harder for me to do or speaking life into people were harder back then are getting easier now, right? Um, and some of those those struggles like we're always going to have sin will always be right there. Satan is good at his job of speaking self doubts and deception and lies to us to say, you're not good enough. You're going to fail again. You really think you could do that. Those lies will always be there, but I see and I can feel like, okay, we're gaining traction and we're getting better at this. And, and and through the the Holy Spirit and what God is doing in our lives, it's getting easier and easier, and the momentum is building and building, and it's it's fun and it's encouraging and it's <clears throat> powerful to see it taking root in others, um, and that life in others is encouraging, and seeing others around me grow spiritually in their careers, in their lives, in their person of who they are is is so much fun and i just the next five or ten years i think will be the best ones yet yeah i'm so excited i i bet you are the best non-pro guy (laughs) (laughs) do you have a lot of non-pros yeah we have a number of them i bet you're the best (laughs) that's too kind thank you (laughs) no i can just see you being that guy that encourager and and all the subtleties of going back in your story of the life lessons that go hand in hand with the gospel and with horses and horsemanship and all those things. Like really you can see how this, your, your whole life, you can see how it's just been stacking up for this next 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. 
like all the giftings that you have and you carry and who you are and who you've become and who you've fought to be, dude, like you're get you're getting to into the fruit season of that more and more, I would imagine. And I can just see you with non-pros, dude, like they thought they were coming for a lesson about horses and it's so much more than that. That's what you bring to the table. I think with everyone. I, I try to, and, yeah. and that's what, you know, I really, my mentor in that space, like Lou Starrett taught that because he could train the horses and tie it to our spiritual lives, yep. you know, so, so fast. And, and I see how God does that and uses it in my own life. And, in, you know, so as an example, I'll talk about quickly the, how a horse is, you know, we say though the horse is, um, the horse spooked for no reason. Well, or his he's his shoulder. Let's maybe use shoulder control. He's falling to the inside of the circle. Okay, why is he falling to the inside of the circle? And we can stand the shoulder up all that we want to, and prop up the shoulder. So we're fixing the behavior. But ultimately, what's causing the shoulder to drop in is that the horse's brain is telling him you should lean towards the gate because you want to go back to the barn. So his brain tells him to lean in to go towards the gate. And we're trying to fix a behavior, but we never really fix his thoughts. And it always starts with our thoughts. And until I can train the horse's mind and get his thoughts focused on me, I'll never have control of his body because his body is going to go where his thoughts go. And so we're teaching that in a clinic and then also saying, you know, and for, for you guys in the audience, when you have habits you want to start building, the first step to, to a good habit is the thought. Because your body will go where your brain thinks. The behavior will follow your thoughts. So whatever, so you're, good. whatever you're thinking about today, your behavior will be there eventually. Eventually. Whatever that is. It'll end up there. It'll end up there because it's going to follow the thoughts. Yeah, it's so good. And true mm-hmm. on both sides for us and the horse. That's right. Yeah. Man, what a pleasure to get to meet you. Well, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed meeting you and enjoyed visiting. Yeah. And I think we're going to get a sit around a fire together in a couple of days too. That's while right. I'm down here in Texas. Oh, good. Thursday. Yeah. I'm going to be there. Yeah. I'm going to stick around for it. I'm bringing I'm bringing the guys and it'll be a fun time. Yeah, I'm stoked uh, that uh, our buddy Tyler Avent, who put this all together, is going to host our f- first fire in Texas. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, they're kind of popping up all over. That's so cool. Yeah. So, thank I'm so, you. I'm so proud of that guy, dude. I told him he came to our fall retreat, and I met him in Elko. We were talking on this panel in front of a bunch of cowboys about mental and emotional addiction and just health, mental, emotional health, and just kind of shared our stories on this panel. And I was moderating this panel and that's how I met him. And immediately I was like, Oh, this dude's special. And then he came to our uh, retreat this fall. And I, I just told him like, dude, you're a lifer. Like I'm going to be in that man's life forever. Cool. Yeah, he's just, to see what he's been through and where he's at now, it's like, it's possible. Mm-hmm. It's possible. So, so possible. And he keeps saying yes. 
Yeah, to all the new things. And you get, got it. I mean, you got it. He just is so hungry for more and for all that God has for him and his family and his marriage. And yeah, he inspires me every time I'm around him for sure. Oh, and it's so easy to be like, eh. you feel the Holy Spirit tugging your heart and you're like, that's it's probably enough. I don't want to give that much. Yeah. I don't want to go that far. That's going to be too awkward or too hard or too uncomfortable. I don't know. And he's just like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep going. But when you've, when you've walked that close to the line, I feel like that's how I kind of was too. I was like, I was all in. Because mm-hmm. I flirted with the other side and the other way for too long. Mm-hmm. It was like my friend, a guy that Tyler and I know, he always says, never trust a man that doesn't walk with a limp and smell like smoke. <laughs> and that's why Tyler and I are brothers, because we both walk with a limp and smell like smoke, because we've yes. been through the fire a bit. But yeah, so I'm stoked uh, to get to experience that with you guys and be there for this first fire. And Me too. And also, like, this brotherhood, this world is super small. And I know that I'm going to see you again at some point, and it's going to be like old times, and I can't wait. Maybe in Michigan. Maybe in Michigan. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? You never know. That's right. Maybe you need to come to Idaho and do a little fly fishing. That would be amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Right on, man. Well, I can't thank you enough, and um, dude, you're amazing, and I love your story, and thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me for traveling down here taking the time and for what you're doing. I know this takes time from your life and your family and your job to be an inspiration to so many men. And and I really appreciate what you're doing. Thanks brother. Thanks guys. Adios for now. Hey guys, I thought uh, Brian Bird and I would jump on here after this guy's story that you just listened to. And I think probably most people, Brian don't know, the depth of what wild courage is and how much more we are outside of just a podcast. Yeah. Most people probably just think wild courage is just this podcast and just these stories. But in actuality, we're much more. We send guys to retreats. We host, I think we just talked about 2,500 guys have been in this barn right here in Emmett, Idaho. And for around fires (laughs) and for, for the listeners out there, um, it's been an incredible journey in which we have been able to hear stories from guys who've not only sat in their pain and seen others, but now they're starting to want to get help. They're going on a journey to find healing from counselors and coaches and is really asking us to form a partnership. Yeah, that's that's kind of what's been the greatest joy, I think, of for us is to get a partner with some of these guys, because let's face it, a lot of guys out there, blue collar working guys don't have insurance um, and can't afford to go to counseling. Cause as everyone knows, a good counselor starts at 150 bucks an hour. Right. That's right. And I think one thing that the podcast has done is getting guys to be able to get to a place in their own journeys or where they're like, man, I really actually do need help. And being vulnerable and talking about my emotions and about what's going on in my life is actually, I'm finding healing in it around these fires. And a lot of us, this is great once or twice a month, but we need to go on a much deeper journey. And that includes getting help, professional help. 
that we are we are not. Right. And the cool thing about Wild Courage now that most folks don't understand is we're at actual nonprofit now, an official yeah. nonprofit with a board. Last year, we sat around and some of our partners said, hey, you need board members. It's time to get official. I want to get behind you guys. And today we can say we are. Yeah, we've taken the next step in getting all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted. And we have a legit board that is very well versed in their lane and bring a lot to the table, which gives us great confidence in this conversation of, look, we are much bigger, more than just a podcast. And this past year, we've got to send guys to get help and, and cover their expenses for going to counseling. We've what what we've sponsored guys to go to retreat that couldn't afford to go. And there's no shame in that, right? No shame at all. And guys that have told us that before sitting around a fire, there's no way in hell they ever would have went and got help, got counseling. You know, I just remember a guy named Joe. Um, we paid for part of his cost for counseling. He said he wanted to go. He saw a counselor once a month for 12 months. And while Courage got to pay $600 of it, and Joe paid $600. We split the cost. And the results are simple touch point. Marriage saved. Kids are talking to him. He's cleaning up his mess. You know, if we took the same example and paid $1,200 counseling costs for the year for 25 men, it'd be about $30,000. And which is we, our goal. Which is our goal. For this year. If we, if we send 50 guys to counseling and split costs, they'd be 60000 So it's pretty simple. Um, and the big, you know, 2024 ask is help us help the men. You know, we're going to change the world one healed man. That's right. At a time. One healed man equals one healed marriage. One healed marriage gives permission for the kids to watch and see their dad put in the work that values them the most versus the job, the addiction, the other thing. That's yeah, powerful. It's it's fun to see some of these guys that are local that we've got to help and to see their lives change and to get to be a part of that and partner with them and making that happen is one of the coolest things we've ever got to do. And on top of that, um, we're starting to talk to some different rehabilitation centers in partnering with them and sending some guys that have that need to go to rehab. And the same thing, maybe they're cowboys and loggers and outdoorsmen and, and live in rural America and they have no access to that and not even finding a good fit for them. So that's part of the things that we're putting our hands to right now is to find the right fit for some of these guys to get the help that they need and to help cover the expense of that, which is, I think, again, the coolest thing we could ever get to do. Yeah, it's a total dream of ours. And, you know, we we're just talking, Jeremy, where'd you start your journey? At rehab. At rehab. Yeah. 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 What could it, what could it be like if we can send 50 guys who have a desire to get on the journey of being wholehearted and healed to rehab to start their way home. Well, I, I think that there's a lot of great organizations, Brian, that um, raise awareness for things. And I think our, our what we do with Wild Courage is we're not afraid of the mess. That's what we do really well Yeah, of sitting with guys in their pain. And 
So we want to take the awareness a whole step further and actually get into the process of getting guys the help that they need. And again, a lot of guys can't afford to to do that. And it, it, it really bothers me that getting help is, is kind of held for the people that can afford it. And there's a, there's a whole community of men in all different walks of life out there that are in the latter of those two things that they just can't afford to go. So um, I think in full transparency too, Brian, as far as the, our nonprofit goes, none of us take a wage, no board members. We we do all of this. We all have jobs and own businesses and um, we we do all of this in the margin. And so your money will be going towards what we're actually saying it's going to go towards because the podcast, um, you know... No, nobody gets paid. Nope. We're not doing this for the money. No, no. We're doing it for the healing. Yeah. Yeah. So again, come partner with us. It's just, if you listen to the podcast, if you're a longtime listener, I mean, how many downloads did we just hit, Jeremy? Oh, uh, we just passed 50,000, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and how many countries? And surreal. What was it like? 77? 77 countries. And we say that with, with, uh, with, the most humble hearts. It's crazy. It's been a journey of learning and getting reps, as I say. And, you know, if you listen to Jeremy for a while, he's getting better and better. It's been a pleasure. Uh, oh, thanks, man. To see, to see you grow. It's still scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but again, you know, if we can send, partner with us, we want to send 25 guys to counseling, to the coaches. And we have lots of good partners out there. Britton Collins listening. He's one of them. We have a whole crew of people, of counselors that are great, that are um, accredited and proven. And um, we, you're going to hear some of these stories of guys who've worked with Britton in the future podcast. They're getting and they have in up. the past too, guys that have been on. And yeah. So thanks guys for taking the time to listen to this podcast and supporting us in all the different ways and, and subscribing and sharing and all the things that everyone tells me we're supposed to do. <laughs> Uh, on on the podcast to help spread the word of of hope. And that's the whole point of all of this. Right on. Amen. Thanks, Brian. Thank you.